Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Psalm 45, our sermon text is Psalm 45 today. It's also printed on the back side of your, of your bulletin if you don't have a Bible there with you. And as is our custom, out of respect for the Word of God, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of the Scripture this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. To the choir master, according to lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, and the the richest of the people All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, Nations will praise you forever and ever. The sense the reading of God's word, you may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us even, even this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures, for your holy word. We thank you for the way that it reveals to us, that you reveal to us in your word who you are in the person of Christ, that we might rightly know you and have salvation in him that you reveal to us also your word and your will to us, that we might know how you would have us to live by faith. And we pray even now that you would uh, work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, everybody wasn't here last uh, Sunday, but last Lord's Day we were in, uh, I think, I believe I heard Rob mention it, we were in uh, Mark chapter 8. In the section uh, where where Jesus is asking, you know, who do the people say that I am? And remember what they what they told them, what they reported to him. The crowds that they had been seeing had been saying things like John the Baptist, which would have meant John the Baptist come back from the dead because he had already been killed by Herod. Others said uh, Elijah, and some of them had said, you know, one of the other prophets. Maybe it was Moses or Jeremiah or, or someone else. But but who did who did Peter say Jesus was? Very short kind of uh, terse sentence, you are the Christ. Doesn't give us any explanation. It sounds like Peter just kind of blurted it out and was speaking for the other uh, disciples. 
Um, and we spent a little bit of time last, last Lord's Day kind of unpacking what, what that means. You know, it's a word that we use a lot. You know, and again, I think we said it last week, we sometimes kind of mentally treat it like it's Jesus' last name. You know, we said Jesus Christ, and we don't think about what that name, what that title actually means. Well, we saw last time that uh, this may be uh, kind of a new concept to some of us, but that it's, it's what, it refers to something that theologians often call the threefold office or the three offices of Christ, and that is prophet, priest, and king. That those Old Testament offices, so, so to speak, were all meant to point forward to the one who would be the kind of the ultimate embodiment of all of them. That all those Old Testament prophets pointed forward to the one who was the ultimate prophet, the ultimate voice piece for, for God who reveals God to us as our prophet. What does the Lord Jesus Christ do? He makes known God. He makes God himself known to us. He teaches us the will of God for our salvation in him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says it this way, that in, the, in these last days... What has God done? God has spoken to us how? In or by his son. As our great high priest, what is the Lord Jesus Christ? What has he done and what does he do? He represents us to God. A prophet represents God to the people. The priest kind of does the opposite. He represents the people to God. He represents us before the Father. He has made atonement or propitiation for our sins on the, on the cross. If Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us even now he ever lives and appears at the right hand of God to intercede on behalf of us according to the will of God. He does that forever. That's why his priesthood has no, has no end. Like the earthly priests all died and someone else had to take over. Well, Jesus doesn't have that problem. He is risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father as our almighty and glorious king, the third office. He rules over all things. For the sake of his church, Ephesians 1, 22. As, as our king, he gathers and defends his church against all of his enemies and ours until the final day. He's, he's not inactive at the right hand of God right now. He's not sitting on his hands. He's sitting on the throne. He's ruling over all things even now. Well, that last, that last of the threefold office, the, the king, the kingship of Christ, that's what Psalm 45 in large part uh, deals deals with Psalm 45 is one of those. In some ways, you know, the entire Bible is messianic in a sense. In other words, the entire Bible is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. Well, some of the Psalms we say are messianic Psalms. In other words, they point very distinctly and primarily to Jesus as as the Christ. Well, this Psalm, Psalm 45, is is a messianic Psalm that points to Christ as King, to, to the Messiah as as the great King. And so it's fitting. After last Sunday, looking at Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, that here we are in God's providence looking at Psalm 45, where, where, where Christ, uh, God speaks to his son saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It speaks of Christ as, a, as, as the great king. Well, the psalm is not just a messianic song about Christ as the king, but on top of that, it's also a royal wedding song of sorts. It pictures a royal wedding. It pictures more than that, but that's kind of the heart of the whole of the whole psalm. The first nine verses are addressed not just to us about the king. They're actually addressed to the king himself. They're addressed to him. They give him praise. Those verses do as the one who excels uh, everyone else in every other way, whether it be his, his appearance, his countenance, verse 2, his words, verse 2, his conquering power and might, verses 3 through 5. 
his almighty rule, verse 6, or even his companions. The preeminence of Jesus Christ as king is all throughout the psalm, specifically the first nine verses. Then verses 10 through 15 kind of shift gears a little bit or add something that you might not have expected. And who is addressed in those verses? He goes from addressing the psalmist does the king himself to addressing the bride of the king. The bride of the king, the princess, uh, as it were, the betrothed of the king. She's pictured as prepared and waiting in anticipation of, of the wedding day. And at long last, in verse 15, entering, quote, the palace of, of the king. Well, that, who's, the, who's the bride of the king here? It's the church. Another way of saying that is it's you. It's me. It's the church of Jesus Christ all over the world throughout all time. The church is elsewhere called the bride of Christ in the book of Revelation more than once. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes an extended section about marriage, about husbands and wives. In Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, uh, it, it's actually a pretty brief passage if you think about what he deals with there. You know, it's like he gives you the Cliff Notes version of, okay, husbands and wives, here's how it's supposed to look, you know, Unpack this the rest of your life and figure this out, you know. Um, but what does he say there about marriage between a husband and a wife? In verse 32, he says that he was speaking of what? Christ and the church. You know, Rob mentioned, uh, I didn't think of this this morning, but uh, Rob mentioned the, the, the first announcement of the gospel in the Old Testament in Genesis 3.15. Um, I would say it's actually in chapter 2 on, on the authority of Paul in Ephesians 5. Marriage. It's not good that man should be alone. If, if Genesis 2.18. And what does God do? God has Adam name all the animals, and Adam is basically being shown, nope, 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 not there. And then he causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. He takes one of his ribs and makes a uh, woman who is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Marriage, Christ in the church, is pictured in Genesis chapter 2 before even the fall itself. Um, and so that's one of the reasons it's such an important thing. Well, that marriage of Christ and the church is here at the heart of Psalm 45. It's in passages like this, like Psalm 45, uh, you know, where Christ is pictured, prophesied, foreshadowed. You know, in other passages like this, uh, very often there is a, an earthly fulfillment kind of prior to what it points to Christ as. In other words, it has a, a referent in, his, in, in time before the coming of Christ, whether it be David or King Solomon or, or someone else. And then it, it, at some point it points forward to, in, in a larger way, in a more significant way, points forward uh, to Jesus Christ himself ultimately. Well, some, some commentators have suggested that Psalm 45 is dealing with, with that kind of a thing. It's dealing with maybe the wedding or a wedding of King Solomon and the, the princess from, from Egypt, um, and some would say that's what this is first or primarily talking about before it speaks of, of Christ. Charles Spurgeon uh, says the following. He, he, he disagrees with that, and so do I. He says this, Some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. In other words, they, they, they look for a historical pre, you know, pre-Christ, historical fulfillment that it mainly talks about. And he says, Some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. They are short-sighted. They don't look far enough. Now, others see both Solomon and Christ. They are cross-eyed. Well-focused spiritual eyes here uh, see here Jesus only. In this particular case, and I think he's right, it's not really both. 
it's, it's one and not the other, it's Jesus. He says, or if Solomon be present at all in Psalm 45, it must be like those hazy shadows of passers-by, dimly traceable upon a photographic, which cross the face of the camera and therefore are dimly traceable upon a photographic landscape. In other words, you know, you ever see a picture where there's somebody, the camera's focused on one thing and everything else is hazy in the background or in the foreground? That's, if Solomon's in this picture anywhere, he's not what the camera is focused on. He's not what our eyes should be seeing in the text. The, the, the zoom lens of this camera, of the scriptures, is laser focused on Christ himself and no one else, not Solomon, even in all of his glory, who pales in comparison to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, let's look at these first nine verses uh, to start off with. Uh, and these are the verses that are addressed to the king himself. Again, not just talking about the king, which is good enough, but actually addressed to the king. In verse 1, this is what the psalmist writes. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very much tempted when I'm reading this psalm and when I was preparing even for this morning uh, to kind of run right past verse 1. And get, you know, get to the good stuff. Get to the meat of the of the psalm, so to speak. Get into the details of it. And I think that would be a mistake. I think you and I need to stop and consider and think about verse one at least for a moment. You know, when when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ as our glorious conquering King, there is every reason for our hearts, just like the psalmist, to what does he say in verse one? To overflow with a pleasing theme. If we're in too much of a hurry to get past this and get to the next thing. Uh, we're not giving our hearts time enough to, to percolate and think about uh, this pleasing theme that we should, should have when we think about Jesus Christ. We, you and I should often think of Jesus Christ himself. We should often meditate about what the scriptures have to say about him in particular. The, the Bible talks about a lot of things, but the main thing the Bible is about is about Jesus Christ. When we think about him in particular, we shall find that we have an abundant cause for giving him praise as the psalmist does here. Maybe sometimes if we struggle with giving praise to God, it's because we really haven't thought about him enough, about him in particular, about Christ himself. If we think about him in this text and others, it'll give us an abundant source of comfort in all of our afflictions and trials. It'll give us an unending supply of grace to strengthen us in our most holy faith in any time of need. You know, it's also very easy for us, I believe, as, as believers in Christ, to read, uh, to study, to meditate upon the scriptures in a way that tends towards um, what I would call kind of abstract notions of theology um, that, that stop short of Christ himself. Nothing wrong with, with theology. I'm, I'm not here saying don't study theology. I'm saying please do. But in all of your theologizing, in all of your study of theology and thinking about deep subjects of the scripture, um, let those things be centered on Christ himself. For, for example, if I can use just one thing, some of you, this might not be a comfortable subject, but some of you are very much into this subject as I am. You think about God's sovereignty in our salvation, the doctrine of, of election or predestination. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that when you first come to, to grips with it, um, it, it's one of those things that you almost start seeing it everywhere in the scripture. You look at, at, at Romans 9, and where does Paul look to prove election? Genesis and Exodus. The, the patriarchs, the choosing of the patriarchs, and, and his 
uh, God's dealings with Pharaoh, of all people. Paul says that's about predestination. That's about election. But in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 4, when Paul talks about what we call election or being chosen before the foundation of the world, there's a little phrase he adds there that makes all the difference. What does Paul say in Ephesians 1, 4? He chose us in him. Who is him? Christ. It's not election in some abstract, you know, ethereal form that... It's election in a very particular way. You're you're chosen in Christ. Even election is about Christ. We are predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. These deep doctrines that we can sometimes get all wrapped up in, and that's not a bad thing, we don't get wrapped up, up in them enough or far enough to see that they center on Christ himself. Sometimes we think of, of theology and we study and read and meditate upon these things, but we stop short of thinking about Christ himself and how these things apply to and from him, or we kind of have him on the periphery of our thoughts on these subjects, and that should never be the case. It's easy for us to focus on the many blessings that you and I have by the free grace of God in the gospel, and yet lose sight of Christ himself. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that all the blessings that you and I have in Jesus Christ, uh, we have in Jesus Christ. And only in Jesus Christ. In the gospel. What is offered to you in the gospel? I asked that question kind of in in the wrong way, didn't I? Who is offered to you in the gospel? Jesus, not just his benefits. Not just forgiveness in some abstract way. Not just redemption in some abstract, separated way from Christ. In, In the gospel, at its heart, you are offered Christ himself. For all those things. All those things come from and through him. Jesus is the source of all of those blessings. He himself accomplished our salvation and all of its benefits through his perfect righteousness, through his perfect sinless life, his all-sufficient death on the cross and his resurrection. We often speak of the many blessings that are ours in the gospel of our salvation, and there's nothing wrong with that. We think of things... Just think of a list. You you could be here for hours. I won't do that. But justification, in other words, that that big $10 word, what does it mean? It means you're forgiven of your sins and you're accepted by God as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Why? Because in the gospel, he himself is offered to you. You cling to him by faith. You think of adoption as children of God. How do we have that? In Christ Christ sanctification, even glorification, the things that come along with those things, peace with God, assurance of God's love, joy in the Holy Spirit, growth in grace, perseverance in the faith, all of these things, every last one of them, Christ himself has procured for you and I in his work and his death and his resurrection. All of those things we have in him alone by faith in him. What is saving faith? What is our catechism's uh, answer to that. I won't read the, the actual answer, but it's a receiving and resting upon not just the, the promise, although that's true, you receive and rest upon Christ himself as he is offered to you in the gospel. Not, not just you know resting upon a promise in abstraction from him. You're trusting in him. He is the center and heart of all those promises in the gospel that God has made to us and for us. So let us make it our habit by the grace of God uh, to think much on Christ himself 
For then our hearts will also, as the psalmist says in verse 1, our hearts too will overflow with a pleasing theme, and our tongues too will be ready like the pen of a ready scribe. Well, the, the, what, what does the psalmist actually say now about Christ? He's announced his theme, his pleasing theme is the king. Look at verse 2. He says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Um, that may sound kind of odd to our, our modern ears to hear you know, a man praising uh, the, the, basically the handsomeness of, uh, but it's his king. It's his conqueror. It's his, you know, uh, we, we don't say those kinds of words, but you know, there, there, are, there are times and different things where, where we look up to someone else. You know, if it, if maybe you're a fan of sports. You know, maybe when you were when you were a kid, you know, your favorite player was Tony Gwynn or some other, you know, sports player. You looked up to him. This is a much bigger version of that by by far, but it's him putting this putting his king on a pedestal and saying, There's no one like him. There's there's no one looks like him, no one talks like him, no one conquers like him, there's no one in all the universe like that's my king. That's what my king is like. Now think about this in contrast to Isaiah 53, verse 2, which says this about Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground doesn't sound like much. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's Christ at his first coming. That's Christ in his earthly ministry, especially in his humiliation and suffering and death for our sins and for our salvation. Nothing about him. He's almost the, the, the polar opposite of, of King Saul in a lot of ways. King Saul in the Old Testament, what does it say? He stood head and shoulders above the rest. That's probably where that phrase comes from. In other words, he looked the part. If you were to judge on the outward appearance, which remember God says he does not do, you would have picked Saul. Saul would have been perfect for our age, where politics is all about television and appearance and spin, and how things can be made to look, rather than the substance of character and conduct and such things. How did that turn out? Not very well. Not very well at all. Well, Jesus, in his first coming, Isaiah says, there's nothing about him outwardly that you would have looked at and said, wow, look at him. And yet Psalm 45 gives us the real vision of who Christ uh, is when you see past his humiliation to his glory Well, rather than being praised or admired in the book of Isaiah, uh, the the Lord for his majesty or beauty, the next verse, Isaiah 53, 3 says this, he, rather than being looked up to, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Same Christ as is spoken of in Psalm 45, except for then is a picture of his, of his humiliation and his suffering and his death for our sins. Well, the Lord of glory and the King of kings, what, what, what happened in Isaiah 53 in that prophecy? The Lord of lords and kings of kings, the Lord of glory, what does he do? He lays aside his glory and his majesty, and he came, as Paul says, in the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 8. The glorious king of Psalm 45 did that for your salvation and mine. Same king, same, same Christ. 
The next thing that the psalmist does, he praises Christ the King, not just for his, his countenance or for his words of grace, but for his power and his might, that he's the victorious, conquering king and champion of his people. Verses 3 through 5, he says, he, this, remember, he's, he's addressing the king. He says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, and your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. I mean, this, this is the ultimate champion of his people. This is the guy who's undefeated, never loses a battle, always wins the salvation of his people, always conquers his enemies with his sharp two-edged sword and with the arrows that come from him. The New Testament, the New Testament echoes this kind of language about Christ, doesn't it? This is not just an Old Testament picture of Christ. In fact, the last book in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, says this about Christ himself. Then I saw heaven open, Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. His name and on his robe are written on, on his thigh and on his robe. Where's the sword in Psalm 45? Where does the psalmist tell him to gird his sword? On his thigh, on his hip. It's, it's like having the gun in the holster right here. It's, it's ready for use. The sword isn't up on the shelf. It's on his hip. It's at his hand, at his disposal. That that. Little lengthy quote from Revelation. That's now. That's not just some future thing. That's there's a sense in which that's happening even now. The Lord King Jesus is now judging. He's right now making war from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's even now conquering all the nations by his powerful sword. What what is that sword? His word, the word of God, which Paul calls the sword of the Spirit. Even now he is going forth. Conquering and to conquer, Revelation 6, 2. It's not even just at the back of Revelation. It's all throughout the book. It's the story of Christ conquering despite the worst and best efforts of, of his enemies. Even now until the end of the age, Christ the King, right now, is gathering and defending his church. When you read the book of Acts, what is it a story of? Acts 1.1 tells you it's, it's the account of the doings and teachings, not of the apostles, although they're involved. It's the doings and teachings of Christ himself from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is gathering and defending his church all through the book of Acts and all through Scripture. In the psalm, verses 6 to 7 are of particular significance to us as the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 
verses 6 through 7. And so it interprets them as referring to none other than Jesus Christ himself. In other words, the writer of the book of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Psalm 45 is about Christ himself. Hebrews 1, verses 8 through 9, quoting Psalm 45, says this, But of the Son, he, and he is God in that, in that text. What does God say, in other words, about his Son, about Jesus Christ? Well, this is what he says. Of the Son, he, that is God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Think about how much is said in that short span way back in Psalm 45. The Trinity is in Psalm 45. The deity of Christ is in Psalm 45. The anointing with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What's that referring to? The anointing of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is all through Psalm 45. The work of Christ for the salvation of his people is all through Psalm 45. If there was any doubt whatsoever in our minds as to which king this psalm is really about, verses 6 through 7 should settle that for us. The psalm speaks of the risen, ascended, and reigning Christ the king, ruling all things from the right hand of God. Not only that, but as that, that quote from Hebrews tells us, it teaches that the Messiah himself was going to be whom? God. God himself was going to be God's Messiah. Our king of kings is none other than God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. His throne is the throne of who? What does Psalm 45 say? Whose throne is it? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Isaiah 9, verse 7, a text that comes up every year around Christmas, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be what? No end. Did Solomon's reign have an end? It certainly did. In fact, after Solomon, it, got, it was divided, wasn't it? You had the divided kingdom. Jesus has no divided kingdom. Jesus' reign has no end. In fact, his reign increases forever and ever. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end whatsoever. Well, the next thing you want to look at in our text is in verses 9, or rather verses uh, 10 through 15. And that's where the psalmist turns his attention from the king to the betrothed of the king, to the bride uh, of the king. And, and so this teaches us this is a, a royal wedding psalm. This is a very happy psalm. This is a, a psalm of, of joy and celebration. And that's the main picture. So when you think of Psalm 45, especially the last half, but really the whole thing, it's about Christ and it's about a, a wedding. It says in verse 10 through 12, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of, of the people. Those words are written to you if you're a believer. They're written to the, the church which is the bride of, of Christ. It's an amazing thing to think about. You know, many of you, have, have, uh, you, you are married, you've been in weddings, maybe you've been a uh, bridesmaid or, or best man recently, as, uh, as Wes was. Uh, and you, you, know, you know what that's like. It's a little bit nerve-wracking, but it, it's you know, 
other than hoping nothing goes wrong and you know the plans all coming together it's an exciting time it's something you, you mark it on your calendar you get the wedding invitation if you're even invited to it or you're a part of it uh, you're counting the weeks you're counting the days uh, you're making all the preparations you know uh, when if you're if you're the groom uh, what usually happens is uh, I know for me I thought for about 10 seconds oh no I'm up front people are looking at me and then the music starts and I thought I could have my fly down no one's going to look at me they're going to be looking at her here she comes in the dress I'm irrelevant at this point now that doesn't that doesn't hold true of Christ his he's the one that has all all the glory himself but but it's it's a celebration time it's something to look forward to that's the anticipation that's in this psalm it's it's kind of wedding party time that's that's what this psalm is is picturing well this is about the bride of Christ and so it's about the church in Ephesians 5:25 to 27 this is what Paul writes he says husbands this is a different sermon but husbands love your wives how are husbands to love how are we to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in other words laid down his life for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word why so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish you know no wonder that verse 10 tells us that we are to hear consider and incline our ear no wonder that you and I are to forget our people and our father's house no wonder that we are to cleave to our husband and king and no matter that we are to it's no wonder that we are to to bow down to him as to our lord there was a glory and an honor in bowing to and submitting to Christ as his bride the church is the bride of the king of kings the bride of the king of kings in verse 13 it says all glorious is the princess she's going to be the queen right all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold she's got the wedding dress on she's ready to go we as the church you and i we may not feel very glorious right now we certainly don't seem very glorious right now you and i are certainly not without spot or blemish in and of ourselves and we i think most of us are painfully aware of that most of the time at our very best in this life our very best in this life you and i are beset with many sins many failings many shortcomings many weaknesses many infirmities but Christ our king will in fact one day will present us to himself how does paul put it in ephesians 5:27 in splendor in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing we can we count all the wrinkles now we count all the spots and blemishes now in fact sometimes it's all we see but it's not all that's going to be one day christ will present us to himself without spot well the last thing the, the psalm closes with the words of praise that this king's name king jesus's name would be remembered quote in all generations and that the, the nations would praise him forever and ever what does that bring to mind uh, to you to me it brings to mind the great commission all the nations being made disciples of of Christ being taught taught to obey all of his commands until the end of the age it's a picture of the gospel going forth and making disciples of the king as he gathers and defends his church all the way to the end of the age the old 
uh, great Bible commentator Matthew Henry writes the following. He says, in singing this psalm, our hearts must be filled with high thoughts of Christ, with an entire submission to and satisfaction in his government, that is, in his will and his ruling, and with an earnest desire of the enlarging and perpetuating of his church in the world. If we have a desire to see the the, the glory of Christ made manifest, we will want to see uh, the, his glory manifest in the enlarging of his church and of his kingdom in this world. Our hearts, as he said, should be filled with high thoughts of Christ, with submission and, and satisfaction to his ruling over us. His will is perfect. It's good. Romans 12, too. Good, acceptable, and what? Perfect. Everything he commands is good for us. His will is not meant to be a, a, a burden. In fact, 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God, what? That we obey his commandments and his commandments are not, what? Burdensome. None of his commands to his, to his redeemed people are to, be kill, to kill our joy. It's that our joy might be full. His will is what's best for us and for all Mankind. So let us learn to delight in the, in the glory of our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, as Matthew Henry says, learn to submit to him in all things as our Lord and Master, to seek to do his will in all things in our lives. Let us desire to greatly see his kingdom enlarged and pray, as we just did earlier today in the Lord's Prayer, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven to the glory of the name of Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for psalms like this that, that uh, in some ways we might be tempted to look at them and not see much practical benefit in it, but that the, the practical benefit comes from being reminded to look to Christ and to, and to think and meditate upon Christ and all his glory and what he has done for our salvation and the glory he has at your right hand, even right now. And we thank you that though we are beset with many sins and weaknesses and shortcomings and failures and all kinds of things, all the spots and blemishes that we uh, so painfully are aware of in our lives now, that one day, by your grace and the power of Christ, that Christ himself will present us to himself in splendor, that he will finish the good work that he has started in each one of us uh, to his glory. And we thank you that he has done all of this for our salvation out of the free grace of God, out of his love for us, uh, not because of anything in us, but because of the goodness of our King. We thank you that we serve a risen Savior and a glorious King who reigns over all things for our benefit from your right hand, that we are not subject to circumstance, we are not sub subject to chance, we are not at the mercy of even our worst enemies, even the evil one himself, but that all things must come through his hand to get to us, and that nothing in heaven on earth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the great King of kings and Lord of lords, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.